Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Bizarre Encounters. Unfortunately, today it is just me, Shane, and my partner in crime, my my other half, as far as the podcasting game goes. He got caught up at work, so it's just going to be me running it today. So before we get into the exciting episode we got today, because we do have an interview today, uh, we got to do the front of house stuff, you know, usual rundown. Yeah, I, I'm sure you guys are kind of getting used to it by now, but uh, you know, if you want to review the show. Give us a five star, anything like that. It's always appreciated. Um, it's the only way that the show will honestly grow is if uh, you guys are spreading the word, even if it's word of mouth to your friends, anything like that. It'll make us so that we can pop up in different places, um, You know, be it on Spotify, be it on whatever, uh, on Facebook, all that. It's all appreciated, and we love you for it. And uh, if you want to come and follow us on social media, you know we're across social media. We're mainly active on Instagram. Uh, we also do have a Telegram group that we're trying to kind of bounce around and have people come in and out and interact on there. But, you know, again, it's building, so you got to be patient. But the only way that it's going to grow, again, is with you guys and you guys being awesome and supporting the show. And uh, if you'd like to get some early access to some Bizarre Encounter episodes, um, you can go and check out the Patreon, which is also available down on the link tree. Um, there is a little snippet that I'm going to give you guys today since it's just me by myself. Um, not that, you know, it, it Ghost doesn't know about it. He's, he's fully aware. Um, I'm going to be doing this little exclusive Patreon show. It's going to be called uh, Bite Size Bizarties. Um, it's going to be kind of an offshoot of this show, I guess you could say. Um, it's going to be pretty much me talking for eh, maybe like 15 minutes to a half hour, just kind of giving you like little bite-sized portions of different cryptids, paranormal things, aliens, anything like that. Because, um, you know, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes when I listen to podcasts all day at work, it gets to be that, you know, half hour before lunch or half hour before the end of the day, and you don't really want to start a new episode because, you know, you don't want to be able to not finish it all in one run. So I want to fill in that little gap with something, give you guys a little bit of something extra. So that's something to look forward to. Um, you know, as that progresses, there will be updates on all of social media, um, including the Open Minds Media social media, which kind of, I'm sure you guys kind of got the picture is kind of the overview company, whatever you want to call it, podcast production, whatever of all the shows that I happen to do. Um, not just this show, but inquiries of our reality and big dumb inquiries, which, you know, I do with Kyle, but shout out to Kyle because like I said, I'm the only one on the show today. So I gotta, I gotta talk from my end at least. I ain't got ghost's side, but on ghost's side, he's not, well, he is part of open minds media kind of, cause we do, we do this show, but you know, definitely go check out, uh, my third eye 
because you got to shout out his show too if I'm just talking about the little things that I'm doing because you know I'm only half the game here. And today, unfortunately, you're you're only running with half the game. So if you want to get some awesome, awesome, awesome Bizarre Encounters merch, um, I'm building up the merch store. I should be adding some more stuff on there pretty soon. Uh, we do have one t-shirt design currently, and it's just our main logo, but it's a pretty damn sweet logo. So if you enjoy the show, go, go snag yourself a cool-ass t-shirt. And speaking of cool-ass t-shirts, Crypto Theology. We got some awesome collab stuff coming. Uh, I don't want to give away the design just yet, but just know that it's awesome, and it's going to be a reference to something. But... Again, you guys will have to keep a watchful eye out for that one. And, you know, while you're keeping a watchful eye out, definitely check out all of Crypto Theology's awesome, awesome designs. I fell in love with the designs. I just went on the website, started looking through stuff. There's a bunch of crazy categories of things. Uh, there's series, and each of those will be different uh, cryptids and states and all that kind of fun stuff, kind of subcategorized. Um, there's a bunch of fun little offshoots. There's a bunch of uh, shirts that are basically band parodies of cryptids, which is super duper cool. Uh, there's a bunch of comic book parody stuff on there too. Um, yeah, then, then there's, uh, what is it? It's, uh, all the serial monsters. I'm sure you guys are familiar with that stuff. Um, done as cryptids, which is definitely pretty damn sweet. So if you haven't already checked out Crypto Theology, definitely go check that one out. Uh, everything that I've mentioned, including Crypto Theology, is all available with the link tree. So while you're at it, go check out the link tree. It's available down in the show description, but I'll also say it for audio for you just in case, you know, you don't get the chance to uh, go down and peek at the show description. It's a uh, L-I-N-K-T-R period E-E slash Bizarre Encounters. Or if you kind of want to find all of the other random stuff that I do, you can also check out the Open Minds Media link tree. And that one is, uh, again, the same link tree beginning with open underscore minds underscore media. And with that, let's get into the show. Today, we have Shatan Noir. How's it going today? It is going great. Thank you. And um, thanks for having me on the show today. I appreciate you making the time to come on the show. So uh, for anybody that doesn't know who you are, why don't you give them an idea of who you are and what you do? Well, that is quite a long page. Um, <laughs> first and foremost, I am the owner of Squatch GQ Publishing. And I produce a couple of different magazines with that. Um, there is, of course, Squatch GQ Magazine. There is Cryptozoology Digest. There is Into the Liminal Abyss Paranormal Magazine, which covers the paranormal, ufology, high strangeness, weird travels, all the stuff that's not cryptid. Um, I produce Dinosauria and Prehistoric Creatures Magazine. And soon I will be producing uh, a couple of additional magazines, including... October in your state. Um, each new issue will be released in August of every year and will be dedicated to a different state. The first one is Michigan because that's where I live, um, but also uh, Rock Hounding and Prospector Magazine uh, because that's one of my passions and interests is uh, all things uh, dragon horde related, we shall say. <laughs> Gems, minerals, fossils, all that cool stuff. Precious metals, even non-precious metals. Um, so that keeps me pretty busy. But I also do a lot of presentations for libraries, paranormal uh, conventions, cryptozoology events. So I am usually gone most weekends doing that. I do a lot of traveling, going in, uh, uh, doing articles on different locations as I travel around the country, uh, that's one of the things I'm always doing. I also teach at two different brick and mortar um, 
Community Colleges owns Community College in Perrysburg, Ohio, and Kellogg Community College in uh, Battle Creek, Michigan, and Hastings, Michigan. And then I teach online for University Magica, um, which is co-owned by Patty Negri. Um, she's awesome. And then I work on books occasionally. Um, the magazine usually takes up a good portion of my time. So um, I haven't produced a book in a couple of years, but that's only because I've been writing for the magazines and then became owner of the magazine. So that takes up more of my time and doing podcasts. So um, that's me, a, you know, that's uh, covers everything. So I'm either working on stuff that's related to the paranormal and cryptozoology or talking about it or driving to it to explore it or sleeping or hanging out with my dogs. Sounds like you got a very extensive amount of things that you do. And it seems like it keeps you pretty busy. Actually, weirdly enough, I kind of got to somewhat meet you, but not exactly at Bigfoot and Brews. And I know that you were yes. doing a presentation there. And uh, I got to hear it. I was over on the side table. So I, from what I heard, I definitely really enjoyed it. Oh, excellent. Thank you. But uh, I'd love to get into some of your research that you're doing or some of your presentations. Um, you know, sure, whether sure. it be paranormal or cryptids, wherever you kind of feel like rolling. Uh, you know, we kind of cover all that hey, kind of stuff on the show. It's so. all open territory. Let's go for it. I mean, just for the sake of it, you want to go, uh, go into some cryptids first? Sure. Yep. That would be perfect. So uh, w what are some of the cryptids that you do presentations on? So my most requested presentation is my one on lake monsters. And of course, that is one of the books that I have published is Lake Monsters and Other Odd Creatures of the Great Lakes. So I am always being requested to do presentations on lake monsters. And that is like my number one presentation that I do and people seem to really love it and of course I really love it because I love my lake monsters and to me you can't prove that they're there you can't disprove that they're there because mm -hmm. most of these big bodies of water will never be drained so you can't you know say oh nope we didn't catch any plesiosaurs in there because we drained the lake and there's nothing in there because there's no way you're ever going to drain Lake Superior or Michigan or Huron or Ontario, maybe like Erie, but you know, uh, I think that the algae bloom would have an issue with that. But <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, lake monsters are, are one of my favorites, but I also do presentations on Mothman and uh, flying creatures. I do presentations on um, Bigfoot and Dogman. And then I do presentations on just other strange bipedal creatures. Um, one of the courses that I teach for the, the colleges is um, the cryptozoology of North America. And that, you know, right there, that is a huge umbrella term, but there's so many creatures that, you know, fit in there that I explore and I, I talk about that really it's, it's, you know, I'm glad that it's a four week course because that gives me just barely enough time to cover all of them. <laughs> Yeah, I bet. And it's like you only start scratching the surface and then there's more stuff that connects into other stuff. Oh, yes. But uh, being a Michigander and maybe it kind of worked out that Ghost unfortunately doesn't get to be here today. I'd love to you know, hear more about your uh, lake monster research, especially considering that I also am a Michigander. Ooh, OK. So, you know, it's the, the reports of the lake monsters go back to 
before European settlers even came into the Great Lakes area, the Native Americans' long, long history of storytelling goes back to ta talking about creatures like Inabishu, the great underwater panther, and how he was the guardian of the underworld and, you know, guarded the, the gateway between those two worlds. And he was also the one who would stir up the lakes and, and create chaos on them. But in those same bodies of water, you have the creature, the great Manitou, Nibinibis, the god of the lakes, which is essentially a merman type creature that's half fish, half human and he is said to control all the lakes and if you incur his wrath he will send forth storms to drown you on the lakes so you know the native americans have those legends they have the story of carcagna they have the story of gasendia um, they have the story of onair all these are strange and unique creatures that i call amalgamations because they essentially are a lot of different animal descriptions combined into one. So we see, you know, a body like a horse or a cow or a cat, but with like a horse or a moose-like head, antlers, spikes on the animal, a long whipping tail with spikes, sometimes covered in an algae mane, sometimes, you know, um, flying above the water, encased in, in flames. And these are really the more colorful reports that we have of the lake monsters on the Great Lakes. But we only have them because the Native Americans spread these tales from generation to generation, talking more and more about them. And it wasn't until European settlers came over and we're like, oh, we need to document this. And we're writing down the legends. And documenting them that we you know now have these legends and so we do have those to to research and look into but then we've got the reports like the plesiosaurs um the the prehistoric marine you know reptiles and you know in that category you've got the plesiosaurs you've got the mosasaurs we've got giant turtles um don't really have too many ichthyosaur reports here in the great lakes but Everybody thinks, you know, long-necked, you know, creature like Loch Ness, um, Nessie, you know, they immediately picture the plesiosaur. So that's like the go-to for the prehistoric marine reptiles is that, you know, plesiosaur type creature. But we've got giant fish like the sturgeon reports, um, you know, going back to, once again, Native American legend that talks about a giant sturgeon living here in the Great Lakes. And that when the, the big, tall ships started coming into the Great Lakes area, that the sturgeon <coughs> took great offense to it and would attack the ships and put dents in them. And within all those reports, we have so many different recitings. We have hundreds of different recitings. You know, um, sea serpents. You know, you that is the basic term of a lake monster, sea serpent. What mm -hmm. is it? It's a creature swimming through the water, undulating along, and it looks serpentine, but sometimes it has fins, sometimes it has a sail on its back, sometimes it has whiskers, sometimes it has gills, comes in a variety of different colors and lengths, and 
people, you know, we're reporting those when the first ships started sailing across our Great Lakes, and we still get reports to these days. Has there been anything that's like washed up on shore that may have may seem to fit the descriptions of any of these things? Not really, and you know, and I don't, I don't discount the the sea monster reports because of that. Because when you look at how many huge ships have sank in the Great Lakes, and we get a minimal amount of debris or wreckage off of those, and it's usually something that's very buoyant like a life jacket or clothing or something like that, um, that can float on the water and be washed into shore. So the fact that we're not seeing these large carcasses wash up on the beaches, to me, does not dismiss their existence. When you look at, there are literally at least 20,000 ships sitting on the bottom of the, or bottom of the, lake, the Great Lakes. And the only reason we know that they're down there is occasionally if the water is really, really clear, you can see them down there or sonar picks up on them because it gets a ping back from the actual solid object of it. Especially in Lake Superior. I don't know if it's like Michigan folklore, but I've always heard that the water's so cold down at the bottom that nothing comes back up. So like even if there were that, giant creatures that died at the bottom, they wouldn't be able to catch them if they're not moving, you know? And, and, and that is the key thing to Lake Superior. There's that old saying that Lake Superior never gives up her dead. And there's a very important reason why. It's because the bottom depths, when you're looking at Lake Superior, she is our deepest Great Lake, over 1,400 feet at her deepest point. The waters in those depths are so ice cold. I mean, we're talking like your, your kitchen freezer cold. And those, those depths are so icy cold that when a body goes down with a ship, when anything sinks to those levels, because of the cold that's, you know, that's experienced down there, no bacterias grow. And if there's no bacterias, then bodies do not bloat. And if you don't bloat, you do not float. So that is the reason why most maritime wrecks in Lake Superior are considered a graveyard because any human remains that went down with them stayed down with them and stayed down for that very reason because it's so cold. And I know there's there's several different ships down there. Um, the Edmund Fitzgerald, the mm -hmm. Camp Loops, um, various other ships that still have human remains on them to this day and our protected marine sanctuary cemeteries and you're not supposed to dive on them um, because it is a human cemetery now. That's crazy to think about that they actually call it a human cemetery now. Um, kind of getting into like a full round view of, I guess, the Great Lakes in general. Um, what are some of like the paranormal tales that you've heard as far as like the ships go for the Great Lakes, especially Lake Superior? Oh, well, that touches on the other course that I teach for the colleges, and that is the paranormal history of the Great Lakes. And there are so many fascinating tales, but one of the ones that I find very interesting because of all the details added to it. Um, actually, there's two. There's the Kamloops and there's the Bananoc Burn. 
Now, the Kamloops is one of the shipwrecks that if any shipwreck should be haunted, resting on the bottom of any of the Great Lakes, the Kamloops should, because it still has a human body floating around inside of it. And it's been well documented by marine archaeologists who go down to check on the wreck that when they scuba dive and swim through the wreckage of the Kamloops, there is a, a skeleton in there that follows them around <laughs> and they call him grandpa or old whitey. He is a member of the crew that went down with the ship. And as they swim through the Kamloops, the momentum that they create with their wake activates him and he comes swimming after them. And I cannot think of anything more terrifying than when you are more than 800 feet deep underneath water and a skeleton's coming at you. <laughs> yeah, literally sailing behind no you. <laughs> there is no to the top. At that depth, that is a technical dive. That, that means that you have to stop for air bubbles and to release your air bubbles so that you don't get the bends. And so there, it's, it's not a quick, you know, you're not just going to shoot up to the top. If you do, you're going to get the bends. So you have to be very calm, very collected. And, you know, I, I hope for the diver's safety that, you know, if there's a new guy on the team that they at least tell him, okay, when you swim through the wreck, one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to be chased by a skeleton and it's going to scare you or it, it's just going to pop up and it's going to scare you. So just stay calm. Don't panic. It's down there, but it, it's it's just a skeleton. It's not attacking you. Um, so that's, you know, one of the, the most interesting um, haunted, but not haunted, but should be haunted, you know, uh, scenarios with shipwrecks on the lake's bottom. And then the other one that I find very fascinating is the tale of the Bananock burn, which was a freighter that would make deliveries on the Canadian side of Lake Superior. Now, one of the most interesting details is at the time of that ship going missing, it was not uncommon for a ship's owner to hire the crew and they could hire at that date and time, they could hire a crew that was inexperienced to sail one of these monster freighters around the Great Lakes. As long as they knew how navigation on the ship worked, they, they would send them out. Um, and so the crew on the Bananock burn, when she went missing, the crew members ranged in age from age 16 to age 24. That Super is young. a wealth or depth of knowledge or experience when you're navigating the Great Lakes. So the day that she supposedly went missing, other boat captains had seen her sailing through a fog bank. And they would catch sight of her every so often and nobody thought anything about it. Until a couple of days passed and she never made port. And a, a, you know, alert was sent out saying, hey, you know, can anybody verify seeing the 
the Bananak burn. Has anybody seen her in port? Does anybody see her anchored out on the lake? Um, we need to know where she is because she hasn't made port. And nobody had seen her. That is until a couple years later when the steamer ship, the um, Walter, uh, I believe it's the Walter Riley, was making its way across Lake Superior and they were sticking close to the shoreline of Lake Superior up on the Canadian side because they were also caught in a storm. And their hope was if they were close to shore, if they got caught in the storm, if something went bad, they could at least release the lifeboats, paddle a short way to shore and break up the lifeboats, make a fire, and hopefully wait out the storm and be rescued. But as they are sailing on their their course, trying to, you know, not go deep out in the lake to avoid um, the storm waves, a huge freighter starts bearing down on them and they are blaring their horn at it. They're flashing their signal lights at it. Nothing is making this ship move from their path. So at the at the last possible moment, the captain of the steamer says, okay, go out into the lake. We'll go around it. And they do. They wait a short while and then they head back along the lake shore. And his men are out on the railing giving various hand gestures to this freighter that's sailing past them that forced them off their course and they're yelling at it. And that is until the very end of the ship passes and they see the name Bananak burn on the side of the ship. And they all start, you know, talking to each other saying, why have we heard that name before? What we've heard that name before. We've all heard that name before. And they're, they're back on the path along, you know, the, the route along the lake shore. And some of the men realize the Bananak burn. That's that ship that went missing a couple of years ago. That big freighter. It just went missing and nobody ever found it again. Well, we should, we should have been notified if somebody found it and they were sailing it again, especially on this route. And it's not too long before they see another freighter coming at me at them and the captain of the steamer ship is just beside himself thinking why are all these freighters using this route they're bigger than we are they are are much more likely to withstand this storm and he's they're blaring their horn at him they're flashing their lights at him and yet again this freighter will not move off of their route so the captain says go out into the lake so they they barely bypass this oncoming freighter and as it's going past again the men are, are yelling out things and once again they see this ship is very similar to the one that just passed us like an hour ago actually it's the exact same ship and as they pass the end of it, they see Bananak burn on the end of it again. They're like, uh, how is that possible? Because in a in waves this rough, it takes a, a freighter like that at least four or five hours to circle back around and to get on a heading straight at us again. 
there's no way they did that in over and you know in just under an hour and so as the men are 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 contemplating this they watch the bananock burn sail off into the darkness it is about five minutes afterwards after it's gone into the dark of night that they suddenly hear an explosion and something that sounds like you know a ship being torn apart and they are all looking at each other and they're like did that did that ghost ship just save us because they forced us off of the path before we hit that area is that where they sank so it said that on that occasion the bananock burn saved the the walter steamer ship and its crew from sinking and crashing on the rocks and so the bananock burn is one of the the most interesting stories and the name bananock burn not too many people would know this not only was it the name of the ship but it's a name of a battle that was fought in Europe and it was a very bloody battle. Did they ever end up finding that ship? I do not believe they did. They so only they, have the ghost reports of it. Hmm. I was curious if they ended up looking in that area where they thought that it, you know, it went down at and if they ended up actually finding anything. That just makes it even that that much more mysterious though, is that people are seeing the ship and they still can't find the location of where it's at. <laughs> right, and but they would have to dive down on it and see if either the nameplate of Bananock Burn was on the wreckage, if there is wreckage there, or see if they can estimate the length and size of it to see if it matched up with what the Bananock Burn, um, you know, estimated out at. But go, you know, just the simple detail that the Bananock Burn, its crew. Their ages were 16 to 24. That is just, to me, that would be so scary to be out on that lake on a big ship like that and get hit by a storm because you know that the other guys on the ship probably don't know too much more than you do, probably don't know how to weather out a storm on a body of water like Lake Superior, probably don't know where the sand or reef shoals are, and you're pretty much at the mercy of your captain, the weather, and if your ship can withstand it. Whew. That's rough to think about, even just being in that situation. <laughs> yeah. Um, kind of tying back into like the lake cryptids, is there any of these uh, shipwrecks that you know of that are tied to potential cryptids or have folklore based around cryptid sinking ships in any recent times? So within recent times, there is the ship called the Rosa Bell um, in Lake Michigan. Now, this ship was considered a hoodoo ship because she had sank and they had raised her from the bottom and fixed her. And then they were sailing her again. But the second time that she was found wrecked, they could not find any members of the 21-man crew that had been on her. And it looked like either she had collided with something or something had tore a huge chunk out of her hull. Her sails and her wind masts were broken. 
So they don't know if another ship collided with uh, the Roosevelt. They, they know that there was no reports made, but if a crew had been drinking and had crashed into her, they probably, if they were able to sail away, um, might do so and leave the other crew to drown or uh, make for sure. But they don't know if it was a ship. They don't know if the owner of the Rosabelle decided to have her turned turtle, as they say, um, have her wrecked for the insurance money. And the crew were able to get into lifeboats or swim to shore and abandon her. Or if the crew met their fate due to one of the lake monsters that we have reports of here in the Great Lakes and it tore a chunk out of the hull and just uh, consumed the crew. Uh, a, a buffet of 21 people, that's, that's quite a few people to, uh, to consume in a short matter of time. But who knows, it could have been a sizable uh, lake monster to do that. Very true. <laughs> So uh, I'm assuming that the lakes seem to be what sparked most of your fascination as far as your cryptid research. Um, is that also what kind of sparked uh, your flying cryptid research is like stuff seen over like Lake Michigan? Well, you know, my my fascination with lake monsters actually started with Nessie because back when I started into researching and reading more and more as a child, um, cryptozoology, the paranormal, everything was called New Age. And the only lake monster that truly existed at that time was Nessie. And it wasn't until you started looking at historical reports around the Great Lakes that you're like, no, actually, we have just as many lake monster reports here. So Nessie started my, in Bigfoot, started my fascination with the cryptozoology. But then for the Mothman, I had just finished writing my lake monster book and was interested in starting another cryptid book and I was planning on going down to the Mothman Festival and that was what kick-started my research into writing the Mothman book and then as I interviewed other people as I did more research I realized that there wasn't just Mothman there's gargoyle type creatures there's thunderbirds there's pterosaur type creatures that we have reported all around the Midwest and our you know, just as substantial reports as any other cryptozoology reports that we have here in the United States. Especially when it comes to the Thunderbirds, it's something that's so, it's, it's not that far off from something that would actually be existing. And then you have a lot of like the Native American folklore that's based around them. And when it comes yeah, to like the Native it, American stuff, thing like it may not have been giant birds that could possibly control the weather, but I guarantee birds in the area. Right, and there there's a difference between the Native American folklore Thunderbirds, which are seen as the good guys. They're they are the ones who battle the Inabishu, the great underwater panther. Um, any of the the creatures that would attack human beings. They are the ones, you know, the Thunderbirds are the ones who hold those creatures in check and protect the human tribes of, of Native Americans. But there's a difference between those Thunderbirds and the Thunderbird like the um, the Lawndale, um, Illinois report of 
the giant bird that you know that came down and tried to make off with the ten year old boy, and only succeeded in carrying him maybe twenty feet before it had to release him. But there was two of these giant birds that we reported, and they you know <coughs> the report says that these birds were black <coughs> with a white ring of feathers around their neck, <coughs> and then. From that ring of feathers forward to their beak, they were bare. To me, that evokes the image of a vulture. Mm -hmm. But to my knowledge, the Great Lakes are not a habitat for a vulture that big. Eagles, yes, but we don't have any eagles that are naked and devoid of feathers from their neck to their beak. So to me, that is more a condor or a vulture and a gigantic one at that. To be able to carry a 10-year-old child that weighs probably 60 pounds or so. Oh, yeah. And, uh, I mean, what's the most recent one that was seen in, like, the, like, Mich or in the lake area, I guess you could say? Because that would kind of cover... Illinois, Michigan, all that kind of right. stuff. Like, is it possible that there was only a small group of them that may have been around still and maybe they've gone extinct by now? Or do you think that they're still kind of around somewhere and maybe just kind of living in small numbers? Well, if we look at when that report happened, that was the 1970s. And the big uproar during that time was that sections of the South American rainforest were being destroyed burnt down so that farmers had more land to produce crops and livestock. So the interesting thing about flying birds, insects, it doesn't matter on your wingspan because we know that hummingbirds navigate from Minnesota all the way down to New Mexico. We know that monarch butterflies also migrate from the Great Lakes area down to Mexico. So length of time, you know, of, of travel time really does not matter to a flying creature. So it is possible that as rainforest habitat was, you know, destroyed in South America, possibly two very large birds, a mated pair, decided to fly out of there and flew until they couldn't smell or see smoke anymore, but then continued north, maybe following an airstream, maybe, you know, um, some, you know, instincts kicked in that, hey, there's food sources, you know, if we keep going north, maybe they got into the Great Lakes area and we're like, how? Deer, rabbit, children, you know, all, you know, suitable sources of food. Um, you know, people cringe at hearing that, but to to animals, to the wild, human beings are on the menu, just like to human beings, animals are on the menu. And it's, it's a, you know, give and take scenario of, you know, what circumstances do you get caught in where you are either the predator or the prey? And in this case, you know, this boy was, uh, his name was uh, Marlon, and um, he was caught on the menu that day. And 
from what the, there's, the, it was him and two of his friends playing and his mom and some neighbors were working on a camper in the driveway and the boys saw the three or the two birds getting closer and closer and it wasn't until the larger the two birds started to make a downward descent towards them that the boys realized um this is gonna be bad and one of the boys jumped in some bushes the other boy jumped in a pool and poor marlin was stuck out in the open and he was the one that the bird grabbed and as he was screaming you know while the bird was carrying him off his mom was throwing things at the bird uh, Marlin was hitting the bird's legs and it eventually dropped him and he was never the same after that. Oh no, I guarantee you not. After getting lifted by a giant bird like that, it almost makes you scared of the sky for the rest of your life because you never know what could be swooping above you. <laughs> right, because you're like, you're like, you know, unless you're in a building or in a vehicle, you're not safe. You know, and that was proven to me, you know, in my childhood when I was carried off by a large bird. Is, has there been any uh, skeletons found of large birds in that area? Not that have been reported. Um, there was an additional report of there was a gentleman who was out fishing in one of the local river uh, uh, tributaries there in Lawndale, and he reported seeing both of the big birds. He tried to videotape them, but back in the 70s, uh very grainy you know video quality so you can't really tell the size of the birds but according to him he said that it was a pair of very large birds with one being significantly bigger than the other bird and that they they flew along the route of the tributary and he you know watched them and then eventually they flew off and he lost sight of them. Do you think all these sightings are just these two specific birds? Or do you think that there's multiple birds in the area? So, you know, it, it, it would be, you know, it would be a, a case of dismissal to think that if these, you know, two birds had flown up from South America that it would only be two of them because most birds fly in a flock and I could see where if the rainforest around them was being destroyed and you know fire and smoke and large you know construction equipment were you know raising havoc in the habitat of these you know birds that you would probably get a lot of them flying up and being large birds, they probably have a set territory of what they like to cover. So maybe, you know, they took up different pockets and, okay, you know, the last ones, you know, to North America, you have to go the furth furthest north. And so from there, maybe they went back down to South America. Maybe they continued up into uh, the Canadian provinces over to, you know, Alaska and, you know, we get these big bird reports all over the United States, whether they are a misidentified, um, you know, species that we don't have air quotations here in North America, but it's in other parts of the world. 
Well, you can't really tell a species where it's allowed to live and where it's not. Either they figure it out. Okay, this is a good habitat for me to live in. I like the weather patterns. I like the temperatures. I like the food that's available to me. I like the habitats. Or I don't like this. I'm going to fly off somewhere else and find something similar to what I was living in before, but, you know, still available to me um, within the natural world. So uh, starting to kind of spread around the Great Lakes, because it seems like I just kind of want to touch base a little bit on everything that you've done as far as Michigan goes, you know, take sure. the opportunity sure. since we got two people from Michigan here. Um, so as far as you like your dogman research, um, I, I definitely am fascinated by that. Um, I dig a lot into dogman myself. Um, I'd love to get into some of your dogman research. So I am the lead investigator for the Michigan chapter of the North American Dogman Project. And... I do get reports throughout the year, usually during um, the winter months, um, because they'll have a sighting in the fall and they won't, they won't really get the courage to send out a, a message until later in the year. You know, by the time that happens, all the evidence is gone. There's no footprints that we can collect. There's usually no hair samples. And... Nine times out of ten, the people, they they can give you a, a large area where the sighting took place, but they can't pinpoint it to the exact location. Now, Dogman is just like Bigfoot. There's not just one of them. I am. It, it boggles my mind that people think that there's only one Bigfoot and one Dogman. And they just yeah, travel, no, it's around, species. travel around the country <laughs> together like, hey, dude, we're in Chicago today. Nope, now we're in now we're in Maine. Oh, we're going to Massachusetts. You know, it's like, no, there's there is a lot of them. There's not just one. There is a breeding population of them all around the world. And especially here in the United States of both Dogman and Bigfoot. And what I tell people when people say, well, could there be one of those Bigfoots in my area? Do you have any farms where you live? Do you have any fruit orchards? Do you have any vegetable or fruit producers in your area? And they will generally say, well, yeah, we do. Okay, so that means you have deer and rabbit and small game in your area well yeah we have those then you have the potential of a bigfoot or a dogman living within your area because if they have fresh water and they have deer rabbit fruits vegetables to eat then yes they have everything they need to exist in your area and people are like oh and i'm like so think about this. Cities like Detroit, everybody thinks is this big industrial wasteland. And yet there are huge pockets of vegetation. Mm -hmm. There are farms on the outskirt of it. So that means that there is the potential for any of this to be as close as it wants to be to humanity. What's uh, some of the most substantial things that you've personally seen yourself as far as like Sasquatch and Dogman goes in Michigan? So 
I have had a Bigfoot sighting myself, but it was actually in Minnesota um, on my way home to Michigan. And so I know that, you know, they do exist. I have a lot of friends who do the Bigfooting. Um, they go out every other weekend. I'm usually at conventions. Um and they get the wood knocks. They hear sounds. They've had experiences. So Michigan is a very active state for all cryptid activity. And it's usually from March until late November. And then because I do believe that they migrate, I think the Bigfoot and the Dogmen they migrate to southern Ohio, northern Kentucky, southern Indiana, where the temperatures are, you know, they still get cold during the wintertime, but they're not as bad as here in Michigan. It's a little bit more mild, and they probably have better access to water, to deer, to food sources that, you know, haven't been collected. And so I, I do think that they, they navigate and they migrate, you know, to areas that give them the best possible resources that they, you know, can have. You know, and when you consider black bear put on most of their body weight from eating nuts, grubs, and, you know, berries, you know, black bear are huge. You know, they they put on most of their body fat from those sources and then they hibernate all winter long on it. And that's a black bear. You know, they use their teeth to crack open walnut shells and, and acorns and stuff like that to chew them and eat them. Whereas a Bigfoot, if they have two rocks, they can they can have a smorgasbord of as many nuts as they want, you know, berries, stuff like that that they want. And deer, uh, there's no there's no lack of abundance of deer dead along the roadside that makes a, a fast, easy meal. So, um, you know, I do think that they have all the resources that they need to make out a pretty good living here in Michigan, even even into the, the winter months. If they find an old, you know, abandoned barn that um, is out in the middle of nowhere or cabin or something like that, that's as good a shelter as any uh, for them mm -hmm. to be in and to insulate themselves. We know that things like walnuts and acorns and um, those type of, of nuts that we have growing here in Michigan, that they are, you know, they dry well, they, they season well, and they are a edible food source all year you know, long. So as long as they have, you know, that, they might go out, catch a deer um, or kill a deer or a rabbit, you know, every once in a while. And we know that in the winter months, everything stays refrigerated outside in Michigan because mm -hmm. it's cold. So it's not like the deer is going to go bad. They just have to protect it from coyotes, wolves, cougars, dogman. And, you know, they, they have a food source. So really, they have everything they need here in Michigan to live year round if they're not migratory. 
I was going to say, too, it seems like there's been an uptick in sightings as far as, like, lower Michigan goes. And with, like, the years changing and it seeming to not get as cold as it used to as the years progress, do you think that they're starting to not migrate down as far and maybe they're just kind of staying near lower lower Michigan? I think they they are understanding where the food sources are. And they are an intelligent being. So it doesn't, you know, every once in a while I will talk to people who hike or, you know, they go out hunting and they're like, you know, it's the weirdest thing. I found a, uh, a corn crop in the middle of the woods. How did it get there? And they usually will put it off on, well, you know, maybe something ate it, pooped it out and it, it planted itself or maybe it was a squirrel or, or something like that burying the seeds. And, or, you know, we came across apple trees out in the middle of nowhere. Well, maybe it was just an old apple orchard or homestead and, you know, it's, it's an old growth, you know, orchard and they're still to this day, uh, you know, producing fruit, but you know, the fruit is, is 20 feet up in the air and, you know, nobody's going to get that. Want to bet? Because a chimpanzee is as strong as 10 human beings. Can you imagine what a, how strong a Bigfoot or two Bigfoots are? All they have to do is shove and push against that tree. It's going to knock loose apples, peaches, whatever fruit is up there, nuts. And then all they have to do is stockpile that, especially going into November, because you know that the, it's going to stay fresh during the wintertime and they have a food source. And if they very intelligently pick out those seeds, plant those back where they found the fruit to begin with, then they have a, a ever ongoing source of food that is continuing to grow and, you know, produce food for them. Same thing with pumpkins, you know, people throw pumpkins out into the woods um, with the seeds in them. Well, those take very, very well. And, you know, pumpkin, squash, uh, gourds, you know, most of that is good eating. And the wild, if it's good enough for a deer to eat, you know, or a rabbit or a raccoon, then Bigfoot knows, well, that's good enough for me to eat. Do you think that they're intelligent enough that they're starting to, like, plant their own crops almost then? I, I think that they have been doing it for a long time because they're, they're not stupid. And, you know, any animal species knows where to find food at. And it's when you look at things like squirrels that go and plant the nuts and how whole force start from just that. And the squirrel is doing it because it wants to preserve, preserve the food and hide it. But the Bigfoots are doing it because they know, okay, if this came out of the tree and this is what I eat, then if I put that back into the ground, pretty soon there will be another tree producing that fruit or that, you know, nut, and I'll have more to eat. And you, if you have adults teaching the juveniles that, then you start a generational learning pattern and people will say, well, no, primates aren't that smart. Well, it was documented and demonstrated that a group of scientists who were observing, I believe they were macaques, monkeys, on a 
island. They would give them sweet potatoes. They would just throw out the sweet potatoes into the wet sand. And the macaques would take them. They would eat them. But the macaques didn't like the wet sand on their sweet potatoes. So one of the females started washing her sweet potatoes in the water to get all the sand off of it. And then eating it. And as soon as she did that, all the other macaques around her started doing that. But then scientists who were conducting similar experiments on different islands doing the same thing with a a similar species of monkey or primate, it was almost instantaneous that they documented that all the monkeys started washing the sand off of their sweet potatoes or their fruit and eating it. So that intellect, that intelligence, that problem-solving ability is ever-present in primates, and human beings are primates. So we can't say that monkeys, gorillas, chimpanzees, Bigfoots are stupid animals because we're related to them. So basically, (laughs) we'd be calling ourselves stupid. And when you look at their, their intelligence, their hierarchy... Um, the way that they just live in the wild. No, these are very intelligent animals that have been doing this since the ice ages. So, you know, you can't, you can't tell me that they don't understand how to produce food, whether it's planting a crop or finding animals to eat. I even think that they have gotten to the point where they're a better hunter than human beings are because I think that they observe that cars go down roads, deer, when they see a car coming at them or headlights coming at them, freeze. Said car hits deer, kills deer. Said car might drive off, might come get picked up by another car, but they leave the carcass of the deer on the side of the road that's a free dinner. So if you're intelligent, and I think that both Bigfoot and Dogman are, you'd wait till you know that it's the time of day when a lot of cars will be coming down a certain road (coughs) and you chase deer across that road in hopes of one of them will be be hidden by a car. Then you have a free dinner for you and your family. I mean, they might even be more intelligent than people if they find a way to live out in the woods and not actually have to be part of the whole rat race like people do. I mean, they could just be more nature-minded and be just as intelligent, considering they do seem to have their own languages, too. Exactly. And, you know, because one of the ways that we as humans measure intelligence in another species is how do they communicate? Can they use tools? Do they have a family or a hierarchy? And we know that with Bigfoot and Dogmen, this is certainly true. They do use tools because they can throw rocks at us. They can throw logs at us. They can turn doorknobs. They can open, you know, uh, buildings. They can capture animals and break their necks. So, yes, 
they know what their hands are and they know how to use them. But they also communicate. They have a very fluent, um, you know, vocabulary of different calls, different speeches that they make. But with the Bigfoots, we now know that, you know, it's been documented that they can mimic human speech. They can mimic bird calls. And each one of those bird calls has a different meaning to different Bigfoots in the woods saying, hey, there's humans coming. Oh, one of them has one of those gun-like things that kills deer. We should hide from that one. You know, oh, that 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 hunter who had, did you hear that sound? Okay, he killed, he shot that deer, but the deer ran away. Find that deer, kill it, and take it so that he can't have it. And it's people, crazy. you know, they dismiss the sounds that they hear in the wild as, oh, well, that was an owl or that was a bird. But look at the time of day. Should owls be hooting at this time of day? Is that bird song that you just heard or that whistle, is that a bird that is normal to your part of the, the state or the country? That howl or that whistle that you heard, did it sound human to you or did it sound canine to you? Because... Sometimes they are, but sometimes that's from a different creature. Very true. I mean, going into like the dogmen, do you think that they're as like intelligent as like Sasquatch, or oh, do you yes. think that like Sasquatch would be way more intelligent than the dogmen? I I will tell you this, and I have talking I've talked to so many different Bigfoot investigators. Who dismissed initially that Dogman existed, but then they noticed that big, their Bigfoot territories were going empty, as in no more Bigfoot activity. But they were getting things like howls, and people started reporting more Dogman activity in those areas. And what happens is when a Dogman moves into a Bigfoot's territory, the Bigfoot leave. Normally, this is because it's not just one dogman. They they are a pack. Just like with wolves, just like with coyotes, just like with foxes, mm -hmm. just like with domestic dogs that have gone feral, or even domestic dogs that live together. There's always a hierarchy. There's always a pack. Dogs, canines of any type are a pack animal. So what you have is usually a group of female Bigfoots raising young and a pack of dogmen will move in. Now, if you're a female animal, your first priority when you're raising your young is to protect them and get them to adulthood. If you have dogmen move into the area, your chances of survival just diminished by 75%. So Do you, your only opportunity is to move to a different territory, move your family to a different territory and let the dogmen have what they want from that other territory. Do you think that they might be uh, almost like subcategories of like the same type of species or do you think that they're their own complete standalone species? I, I think that they are, are different. Um, just in the, the way that people describe the dogman, um, the adaptation of long ears, of a snout, of a tail, 
of a a body style that is different to what the Bigfoot is, those are that's a long process to change. Um, you know, with breeding and you don't do interspecies breeding. You don't see a wolf breeding to a Bigfoot or, or to a ape. Um, it, you know, dogs, wolves can breed to dogs, yes, because they're canines. And within the primates, um, we don't really see that. We don't see chimpanzees breeding to silverback gorillas. We don't see uh, orangutans bre breeding to um, uh, macaques. We don't see, you know, any of those, you know, happening. The closest we've seen is there is a linking species in between chimpanzees and gorillas, and that's the bonobo, that as recently as the 2000s, scientists dismissed that these even existed. They would say, oh, you saw a very fat chimpanzee or you saw a very thin ape. And then somebody went out and found evidence of them. And now we have them in zoos. And like the, um, I believe it's the Cincinnati Zoo has, or no, it's the Columbus Zoo has gorillas, chimpanzees, and bonobos. And if you look at them, you can see they are all different, but they share a lot of the same characteristics. And you can see how science was fooled for a very long time that there was three separate species there, not just two. So I think that they, when we go back to talking about Dogman and Bigfoot, I think these are very separate animals and there, there's nothing um, common between them except for the fact that they are both apex predators. They are both wild compared to human beings and they've both learned how to live in the woods and achieve a size of at least seven feet tall, seven to nine feet tall. Do you think that uh, the dogmen being in like northern Michigan might be part of the reason why it seems like there's more Bigfoot down in like southern Michigan then if they seem to kind of push them out of an area? Do you think that the dogmen are kind of taking over like the northern area of Michigan? Yeah, then? You know, that could very well be because if you're, you know, if you have to give up your territory, then you're going to go to the next best place. But you also want to put enough space between you and that threat that you know that your offspring are going to be safe for a while. So they do have a communication system and they might call out through the woods asking, you know, other Bigfoots, are these predators in your area? No, there's not. Okay. So then they make their way to that, ter you know, that territory. And while a Bigfoot might take up residence on the outskirts of a farm or an orchard or something like that, I think, they would probably live there for as long as the, the, you know, the feeding is good. I think a dog man would just come to hunt the deer and then leave again and really wouldn't want to interact with the humans too much because that puts the dog man on the human territory. Whereas out in the woods, in the forest, the human is in the dog man's element and it's a much different playing field. 
are a lot of the uh, Michigan dogman encounters more of like on more violent encounters? Like they seem like they're almost like trying to kind of push people out of their area too. A lot of times. So the last couple of reports I have gotten have been from Western Michigan and they have been close to closed um, farms um, like apple orchards, pumpkin patches, and they have been in the evening time and they, the people say that they're, you know, as they're driving along, their headlights will catch them. And it seems like the dog man knows that the car's there, but they're hunting something. So my guess is they're probably hunting deer, but I think they do this because they know that that is a good spot for catching deer because any leftover pumpkins fruit, anything like that, the deer are going to come in and try to eat it and because that's an easy meal and they can get nutrition out of that. But that also opens them up to human hunters and also Bigfoot and dogman hunters. So I do think that, you know, the dogmen take advantage of that. Uh, kind of branching out a little bit, is there any more like land cryptids that you know about in Michigan as far, you know, besides dogmen and Sasquatch? So there is an interesting one that I have been getting reports of, and I call him the Beast of Old 27 because he's been spotted in the areas between Traverse City and Houghton and Midland, and then between, like, um... Mount Pleasant and Midland. And this creature is described as being as tall as a camel and the same color as a camel. Shaped more like a bear. It has a snout. Has a tail, kind of like a fox's. Has very tiny ears. And that's the that's one of the things that sticks out in, in the reports that I get is people say that the ears are very comical. You have this huge animal and it has these little tiny like fox-like ears on it that just look out of place. And it's a very solid animal, very thick furry coat, and it will leap across the road, generally from one side of the road to the other. If it's a four-lane highway, usually it will touch down in the middle and then it leaps across the other way. So think like the the demon dogs from uh, Ghostbusters, how they would leap. Mm -hmm. And the thing that catches everybody off guard is when the people cross the road where the animal crossed, when they get to that part of the road, they say there's nothing on the other side of the road. Most of the time it's an open field and there is no sight of this animal. And they're like, it was moving fast, but the field was huge. We should have been able to see it, you know, halfway across the field or somewhere like that. It just disappears. And they don't see tracks. They don't, you know, they, they get the visual image of it crossing in front of the road and then it's gone. And I've gotten, in the last four years, I've gotten three different reports of it. Is that like the only sightings that you know of the, of this is the three reports? Those, those are the three that have been reported to me. There could be more out there, but the, the thing about sightings and reports is one, the human being who has the sighting 
has to survive the encounter to make the report. Second, they have to be willing to come forth and make the report to a reliable source who's going to document it and, you know, make a case out of, out of it and not just, you know, oh, thanks for your story and, you know, never talk about it again. There's probably more sightings out there, but people either don't feel comfortable talking about it or they question what they saw or they just dismiss what they saw. Like, nope, nope, I didn't see that. Nope, that didn't happen. Um, I Nope, that didn't happen. Because they, they want to preserve their sanity and they're like, okay, I, I, I can't, you know, legitimize that. I, there's no way that creature exists. Is uh, there any possible like explanations for what this could be, or is it all still kind of up in the air at the moment? To me, it's up in the air because everybody who's seen it, the animal has been in movement as they saw it. They have not seen it standing still. They have only caught it as it runs across the road. And each case, it, it does it. So the, the first report I got, the woman um, who gave me the report, her next door neighbor had had a heart attack and was in the ambulance. And she was driving his wife behind the ambulance up to the... Um, hospital and she said this happened in the 1980s i said okay and she said the animal crossed in front of the ambulance and off into the woods so the ambulance driver and paramedic saw it she saw it her neighbor's wife saw it her husband, who was following in a truck behind her, saw it. They all saw it when they got to the hospital. The wife of the neighbor was traumatized. She only wanted to deal with her husband and didn't want to discuss it. The ambulance drivers admitted they did see something, but they didn't know what they saw. So the wife who was driving was the one who gave me the report and documented it. The second report I got was from a gentleman who was taking his kids to soccer practice. And this creature ran right out into the road in front of them. It was like 50 feet in front of them and just kept going. And when they got to the spot in the road where it had crossed, they were all looking off into the field and there was no creature. But they all saw it. And it was, both of those were during the daytime. The soccer dad, that was middle of the day. The lady go taking, you know, following the ambulance, that was later in the afternoon. And then the third report I got was also midday. And it was a husband and wife who were coming home from church. And the creature just ran out in front of them and disappeared off into the, the field by the side of the road and was gone. And they said it was, you know, it was at a full gallop, but 
we saw it and this is our description of it and we don't know what it was it wasn't a bear it wasn't a camel it wasn't you know they're like those are the only two things that we could you know say uh it you know was the shape color and size of they're like it wasn't a moose uh you know we don't know what it was that's why we're we're contacting you so now i have three reports of this creature and we're no we're no closer to knowing what exactly it is than when i got the first report is there any uh, native american lore that you know about that might describe something that kind of sounds like this you know so i haven't gotten to that point yet where i can start asking more questions um Especially the Native Americans don't really like to talk about anything other than Bigfoot or Dogman. Um, they they have a, a belief that when you talk about it, it draws it to you. So if this is a bad creature, then they don't want to really communicate about it because when you talk about it, it brings it close. Um it's a possibility it could be a Wendigo and just be a really weird, you know, thought form of a Wendigo, or it could be something else. We don't know yet because not enough people have come forward with reports of it or how it's behaved, how it's interacted, other than making sure it had enough room to run across the road in front of an oncoming vehicle and not get hit. Said, hopefully there's uh, some more people that report on it because I'm definitely fascinated by this. And I'm kind of wondering if it's something that's been around forever or if it's something that's almost like new that may have like migrated to the area or maybe stayed hidden in the woods somewhere until relatively recently until it maybe had to leave for like a possible, you know, yeah. didn't have like a food source that it used to have possibly. Or yeah, maybe it, it got pushed know, out by the dogmen. <laughs> it, that, that could be it too. Um, or maybe it, it, you know, migrated south, you know, into lower Michigan because better resources, better food. Um, you know, there's, it, it's really hard to know when you're, when you're researching these species that there's, there's not, you know, biological studies done on. So you don't know what to expect. You don't know what they're capable of. You don't even know what other colors they might come in or, you know, anything like that. All you know is what the eyewitness reports tell you and what, you know, people get that very quick glimpse of. And then, you know, the sighting's over and they're like, what did we just see? I mean, uh, kind of talking to Native Americans going into like kind of what you were saying before too. Um, is there any that you've heard of that should exist in the area, but you haven't actually like had record of yet? Um, well, besides the lake monsters, um, I would really, really hate to say that the Wendigo would be one because I, I personally will not go research the Wendigo. I believe that it's a, it's what Christians would call a or even paranormal investigators would call a demonic possession. It's a, it's a parasitic entity that gains possession of a human being and then drives them into a insatiable hunger. And so they are always trying to eat. They will eat anything they can get 
including other human beings, their own fingers, their noses, their lips, their ears, anything. And so we do know, according to Native American legends, that these creatures exist to them just as much as moose, deer, bear, cougars, all those exist in the wild. But this other creature, this Wendigo creature, is not something that they like to discuss. It's not something they talk about because, once again, to talk about that creature is to draw it to you. And they don't want that because it's very hard to kill a Wendigo. And once you do kill the Wendigo, that spirit entity gets released and then it goes and looks for a new host. That's the one that there's 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 Native American tradition about, and it does exist. But I truly, honestly hope um, I never have to uh, deal with. Kind of funny you mention it. Um, when it comes to that, I was going to ask if you've had anybody that's actually recorded anything talking about Wendigo in Michigan, um, because I was talking to uh, Justin from Cryptids of the Corn. And we both believe yes. that I may have possibly had a Wendigo experience at a place called Northville um, Psychiatric Hospital. Like, you know, when it was Ooh. abandoned and everything. Because there was a random cougar sighting that nobody happens to find this cougar. And I remember being up on the third story and seeing this thing. And then the following, I think, weekend that I went there, I ended up having this weird experience with this tall, lanky, um, like almost like decaying looking flesh type creature in the basement with long black hair on the top of its head. And I only got the, an image of the back of it as it was standing up. And then I took off out the door because I heard a voice on the side of me that told me to run. But when Justin and I started connecting all this stuff, there's like the tunnels that go under Northville. And it's a good like 20 degree drop going down into those tunnels. So I, I, I'm curious if anybody else is reporting anything in that area because I don't know for sure. Um, but just from like the pieces that I've put together, at least, I kind of believe that it could have theoretically been some type of Wendigo experience. So that could have been a Wendigo, but I would I would say it's probably what we call an elemental um and those really really like places like asale asylums um they they seem to feed off of that residual energy that exists there uh eloise is um is just uh overrun with elementals because they they just feed off of all that negativity and i've never been to the northville um tunnels i've been to northville but i've never been to the tunnels um but people who go in there uh it's you know you never know quite what you're going to run into but there's also the anomaly of the thought forms, the um, the Tobins that um, become real, mm -hmm. and that is a very unnerving experience because people don't realize what they create if they put enough thought into it. And when you're in a scary location, when you're in a place where your mind is creating that which you cannot see or understand and you're putting that energy out there then those things live there 
And the more people come through and put out a fear or, you know, a stress or adrenaline or anything like that, that gives these energy forms something to feed on. And it doesn't take long or too much energy or effort for them to manifest into a full-bodied creature. And then you are dealing with something that exists totally on its own and you have no idea how is it going how it's going to, you know, behave, how it's going to interact with you or any of that. Going into uh, like Northville a little bit too, do you believe that, um, like, I mean, there's a lot of stuff there where people will like draw things on the walls. Um, going onto another side of it, do you think it's possible that people could have, you know, drew things that they didn't quite know what it was and possibly mm -hmm. like summon some type of something to that location? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, because people people always want to dabble in things that they don't understand. And they do this and they unknowingly, you know, bring things into this world that probably aren't supposed to be here. And when you think of how often people do that. You know, not just at, you know, places like Northville tunnels um, or sale asylums, um, but just in every day, you know, people who do graffiti or they're drawing on walls or drawing in the dirt or they're in a scary situation. Their mind gets the better of them and, you know, goes wild creating things. And then these things, these manifestations are just roaming the earth and until they are released or or channeled to something else they are there to interact with everyone and everything and it's a really interesting thought that what if ghosts aren't ghosts but they're these things that we created in our minds because we had to give ourselves an explanation for why we heard the sound or we thought we saw something else and then you've got the the real ghosts and we've got these manifestations and then you've got other things like demons and windigos and they're all out there and you never know when you're going to interact with them or when you're going to uh come across one but they're out there and you could you could walk around you know uh, a sidewalk corner and see something that may or may not be of this earth it could be from another you know plane but it's here now because somebody either thought it into manifestation or they drew it or they conjured it makes you really wonder with northville just because there's i don't know there's a lot that goes into that place there was um a few incidents where there's people that fell down the elevator shafts um so it almost makes you wonder too if it's something that you know, something may have theoretically pushed them down those elevator shafts or if they just kind of like manifested fear or if now because of them having a traumatic death there, if it almost manifests something all on its own because it's bringing that like that trauma into that location. Because I know they ended up tearing down Northville. It seemed like everything kind of got really weird there and then they directly tore it down. So I feel like that has something to do with the reason they tore it down. It wasn't just because they wanted the land to build something else. Right, right. And, you know, but... 
you've also got when, when people are going into that location, um, it's it's not safe from pictures and video that I've seen of it. And so when people go in there and they fall down an elevator shaft or they fall through the stairs, then that's an emergency situation. So they want, you know, obviously the local authorities are like, no, we don't want people going in there. You know, so the best remedy for this situation is just to tear it down. And But when they do that, you release everything. Mm-hmm. It does not, it no longer has a, a attachment to the walls or the ground or this place or that hallway. It's free to roam the, the local, you know, landscape as it is. And Northville is a cool town. They do the skeleton festival every year. And they they really do embrace Halloween, but it's like, hmm, it's going to be interesting when things start popping up in, in October that, you know, people start making reports of, hey, um, there's this creature-like thing in Northville, and all of us will be like, yeah, because you tore down its home. Mm-hmm. I mean, even going into that cougar thing, there's a bunch of cougar sightings, but nobody ever actually found, like, the body of the cougar or actually found the cougar. So theoretically, if it's some type of being hiding as a cougar, it could still be there or it's hiding itself to something else now. And that's why they never found the cougar, never found the body, never found any any piece of it other than just people reporting seeing it. Right. Right. I think that could very well be, too. Um, so we're starting to get towards the end of the show. Um, definitely, this was a wonderful episode and I would love to have you back on multiple times, hopefully the next time with ghost, cause I'm sure he'd love to hear everything that you have to say. Oh, and he sure. can bounce even more information off of you. Um, but for anybody that enjoyed the conversation, uh, where they come find you at, um, what would you like to plug? Like anything you want people to go and look into? Oh, sure. So they can find my books and magazines on Amazon. Uh, if you type in squatch S Q U A T C H gq magazine that will bring up all of the current magazines that i publish um, because that's the name of the company and if you type in chatan noir that will bring up my books that are available on amazon you can find me on facebook for chatan noir um, and then you can find squatch gq uh, magazine um, as a page on facebook and feel free to join and uh, like everything um, I'm, you know, always at different libraries and Paracons, um, presenting. So I generally post those on my Facebook page. And if you want to keep up to date with where I'll be and what I'll be talking about, um, that's the best place to, to check out and keep up to date with everything. I'll have to get all the links from you and I can add them down in the description too, for anybody that, you know, wants to come and find you. Um, definitely worth it. Like I was saying, I get I saw you at Bigfoot and Brews. It was it was a wonderful experience. So I'd highly recommend anybody that gets the opportunity to come and listen to you do a lecture or talk to take the opportunity. And uh, that being said, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show today. And it's been a wonderful show. Oh, thank you. And it's been wonderful. And I would love to come back on in the future and do more shows with you. Thank you so much. And uh, if you need to, too, I can always pass your information along if you'd like to, uh, you know, talk to some of my other podcast friends. Um, you know, it's always sure. nice to kind of just interconnect in the community yeah. and know which people are nice, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I love doing podcasts. And um, I, I will tell you, and you can pass this on along with your friends. Um, anybody who has me on as a podcast guest gets a half-page ad 
in all three of the magazines um, that run quarterly. So um, you'll be in three magazines four times a year. So get me on as a guest and you get a free ad. That's awesome. I didn't even know that. And, <laughs> you know, it's just another added thing. So thank you so much for that. Oh, you are welcome. And if there's anything I can do to help you out and support you too, um, just pass it along and I'm more than happy to do so. Sure, that would be awesome. And on the other half, all of you guys, if you guys have some encounters that you'd like to share with us, be it through a text message, through recording, whatever you want to do, we're kind of we we just we definitely want to get to your encounters in here. We did one listener encounter episode, and we'd like to get some more. But you know, if you're not on that side, you don't want to actually come on the show. We'd love to read some of your stuff in the beginning of the show, and maybe we can help you connect with some other people that have had some similar experiences. And uh, you guys can start to kind of figure stuff out if we can already help you. Because definitely if you guys share an encounter with us, we're going to give you our knowledge that we have on it. And, uh, you know, try to help you figure everything out. Because, you know, all of us have had some weird, bizarre encounters. And, uh, you know, it takes it takes a community to figure them out sometimes. It's, you know, you don't want to venture those dark waters alone. You know, c- come and share it with the group, man. If, like I said, if you need me to change your voice on the show, again, you just need to get your story out. Like, come come to us. We're, we're, we're going to sit here. We're going to listen to your full story. Uh, we're going to give you our input on it. We're not going to tell you that what you saw didn't happen. We're going to sit here with a listening ear, and we care about what you have to say. So don't be scared to come and uh, share your experiences with us. And also, on the side note of that, if you're somebody that researches different cryptids, uh, paranormal experiences, uh, extraterrestrial experiences, anything like fun like that, We'd definitely love to have you on the show. So shoot us a message if you'd be interested in being a guest on the show and you're a researcher. And uh, also on that, anybody who's interested in sponsoring the show, um, we kind of, I don't want to say it's a sponsor, but we have more of like the team up, like we always kind of say with Crypto Theology. But uh, we're definitely down to get some sponsors on the show, um, as long as we agree with your message, of course, which is a very important thing. Um, but, you know, if you're listening to the show, more than likely, we'll probably agree with your message. So if you're interested in sponsoring the show, don't be afraid. Come shoot us a message. Uh, you can email us, all that fun stuff. Um, also, if you're a listener and there's a topic that you'd like covered on the show, shoot us a message, and we'd be more than happy to accommodate and cover whatever topics you guys are wanting to hear. And if there's any guests that you'd like on the show, researchers, we can do everything in our power to try to get that person on the show because we want to grow the show. We want to bring you guys in you know, and give you exactly what you want so that you can really, really get in close with the show. And uh, maybe one day we'll all be just one bizarre family. But, you know, we'll work on the, on the terminology for that. Everybody has their little uh, thing that they call their listeners, and we'll get there. We'll, we'll come up with something cool for you guys. Um, but, yeah, if anything, if you'd like to contribute anything to the show, you have anything cool that you do, be it art, be it uh, whatever, you know, we'd love to hear about it. If you want to just share your appreciation with the show and contribute to it, don't be afraid to shoot us a message, too, on that one. And uh, the easiest way to get a hold of us usually is through our Instagram. But if you'd like to, you know, you can definitely email us, too. Um, our email is bizarreencounters at outlook.com. And bizarre, of course, if you don't already see it on the show description, is uh, B-I-Z-A-R-R-E. And uh, again, that you can even go right to our link tree right at the top. There's a thing that says contact us. You click on that. It'll take you right to the email. And you can shoot us a message. So again, I always resort back to it. The link tree. That's the way to go. Jump onto the link tree. Uh, and again, I'll say it through audio for anybody that wants it. Uh, L-A-N-K-T-R period E-E slash bizarre encounters and uh again if you want to go and check out the subcategories of everything going on possibly that uh little snippet i was telling you guys about you know of uh bite-sized bizarreties you know uh go and check out open minds media 
Linktree, and you'll find everything off of that as far as like my end goes, as far as Shane. You know, this isn't talking about ghost stuff, but you know, my end, which this show is part of that. So definitely go check that one out. And uh, again, that one is the same Linktree opening with open underscore minds underscore media. And with that, I'll leave you guys till next week. Stay bizarre.